Hello, and thank you for joining our latest episode of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. After one of the most stable and thriving decades in history, we're now experiencing a series of economic, social and geopolitical events that have the potential to completely reshape our investment landscape forever. These last five years have given us so much to think about. And I started to make a list earlier of the extraordinary events that we've had. And it's it's really unprecedented. So we've had, you know, the devastating impact of coronavirus. Uh, we've had a massive accumulation of debt. We've had political upheaval. We've had the climate crisis. We've got social upheaval as a result of Me Too and Black Lives Matter. We've got the widening wealth gap. And now we have very high inflation and an economic slowdown. Now, all of these events could have huge implications for how people live their lives. And and many could lead to significant structural change and and force us to to really think differently about the world of investments. My name is Mark McNulty, and I'm International Head of Investment Solutions Clients at Mercer. I'm having regular conversations with clients who are trying to grapple with these issues as they think about designing and implementing their investment strategy. And today, we're going to be discussing a number of key themes with Rich Newsom, president of Mercer's investment and retirement business and a member of Mercer's executive leadership team. He's also the executive sponsor for Mercer's Pride Network. And this year, he celebrates his 30th year at Mercer. Rich, firstly, congratulations on reaching that fantastic milestone. And I know you're just back from Davos, where you've been meeting CEOs and governments and philanthropists and investors. And like many of our clients, I'm sure everyone at Davos is trying to recalibrate how they think about the world today. So my first question is, what were your overall impressions coming away from Davos? Thanks, Mark. Um, the the mood at Davos this year, despite it happening in the summertime instead of with ice and snow and so on, the macro mood was overwhelmingly pessimistic. A long list of risks and concerns that that we all kind of know about going into the conference, and, and very front and center the the Russian invasion of Ukraine with all of its implications, and yet the micro mood was very optimistic. Every wow. every business person I talked to, every venture capitalist, every entrepreneur, every government official, every infrastructure investor who was there trying to progress projects. We'd talk about the macro mood and and go through the pessimistic stuff, but not a lot of new information coming out, mm. just the same risks over and over. And then I'd say, well, how's your business or what are you doing here? And they'd, they'd give me a very optimistic story about the investments they're making and the prospects they have and all in, all in, all in, in terms of moving ahead with digitalization, with with food security, with energy security, and, and so, on, so on and so forth. So I actually came away from from the conference much more optimistic than I went into it because I got a sense just anecdotally of literally the the thousands of things that are happening in the world that we don't yet see or read about that will make the world a better place. Where do you think that confidence is coming from? Because it's it's quite different what you're hearing. Again, you were saying that at the discussion at a macro level is quite pessimistic, but yet at an individual company level or attendance level, that there's a, there seems to be a great deal of confidence. What's How do you marry that? This is a great question. I think it's the starting point that we have concerns about the possibility of a recession, the path of inflation, interest rates, food security, energy security, biodiversity, 
moving away from carbon. All those concerns are out there, but we're starting from the best 10 years ever for a 60-40 stock bond portfolio. So investors are sitting on house money. If they look back a year, they're in the red. If they look back three years and five years, they have a lot better returns than they expected to get. So in some sense, they're sitting on house money. We all kind of knew we had to diversify better. And so people are ready to get on with that. And and the recent market downturn is a spur for that. But then we do have full employment globally. And um, the reason we have one reason we have inflation pressure, not the only reason, but one reason is is the labor market's very tight. So we see at least nominal wages rising for the poorest in society. You mentioned income inequality. We actually see raises wages rising at the bottom, labor force participation rising at the bottom. And that's that's a really good dynamic. And we see people getting pulled into the workforce or or pulled back into the workforce. And and yeah. those are really good dynamics. And and so that that human capital formation will help drive us forward. Consumer confidence is actually relatively high. Businesses are worried about recession risk, but when mm. they look at their individual prospects, many businesses have more demand than they can fill. And and even on something like carbon, you know, there's there's a lot of concern that we're not making progress fast enough to reduce emissions. Having said that, the cost curves for a lot of renewable technologies and associated battery technologies and things like gravity storage and yeah. technologies like direct air capture that actually attack the stock of carbon already in the atmosphere, not just emissions in terms of flow, mm. like what we're adding to the stock every year, but getting the 16 trillion gigatons of carbon that are already in the atmosphere out or some Amazing. of that out. Those technologies are all moving down in cost. And, and one of the optimistic threads in Davos was the number of venture capitalists and infrastructure investors that are attacking that directly and, and making investments now that they expect to help, but also deliberately trying to move those cost curves down so that these become more economic going forward. That's really terrific. And, and I guess expanding that, what were the big ideas coming out of Davos? So that sounds, that sounds very interesting with that, with that, with that cost reducing. Uh, what were some of the other things that you were seeing, Rich? A number of people noted the, so, so one of them is that, that stock versus flow uh, formulation and um, recognizing that, that we need to get to net zero, but actually that, that by itself isn't enough. We actually need to take carbon out of the atmosphere. And when you start thinking of it in terms of stock, versus flow, it's a bigger problem. The orders of magnitude are about 100 times plus bigger, but it it changes your your viewpoint in terms of the types of technologies that you would invest in and, and time horizon to focus and so on. So I think, I think that was one big insight. Another big insight was um, there's a, a theme about deglobalization. And every single conversation I had at Davos said, that's not right we're going to globalize. It's just going to be in a different way. We're going to be more diversified. Our supply chain is going to be diversified, but it's still going to involve international partners. We're going to source from everywhere. We may create redundant sources. So so the idea of resilience, that you want your supply mm-hmm. chain to have resilience, you don't want to focus all of your all of your sourcing in any one country, because whether that country has a zero COVID policy or might engage in some kind of rogue action in the way the Russian government has, you just don't want to be dependent on one country for anything. So, so it's diversification of supply chain, but with a tight global labor market and highly yeah. competitive businesses, globalization has to happen. It just has to happen differently. Yeah, and, and people leaning into that concept. So, so yeah. those are a couple of the big ideas. That's really interesting. And I guess a lot of our clients are going to be listening to this podcast. So, 
I guess, what sort of messages can they take away as it pertains to their investment portfolios? Well, I think the need for diversification, you know, we did just have the best 10 years ever in real return terms for 60-40 US dollar bond portfolio, followed by just about the five months worse ever. And I, I'm not up to the minute on whether it is the worst. At one point, it was the worst market for long US treasuries since George Washington was president. Even even with my 30 years at Mercer, that predates me. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And and on the stock side, really bad. But then also because because stocks and bonds aren't normally correlated, and this year they've both hammered us. You know, it, it's kind of a good spur to get on with the diversification. The private markets are becoming more important globally in terms of share of global market cap, but especially in terms of share of innovation. So if you think about two kids in the garage, let's say that McNulty and Newsom go out and try to take down the investment consulting segment. Well, we're two kids in the garage. We're going to be, I guess we're not kids anymore, but, but we're two kids in yes. the garage. We'll be, we'll be funded by, by venture capital, private equity. The sector we're trying to take down is largely publicly traded. And that, that's true for just about any industry. Think about autos, think about anything digital. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you're only doing public market investing, you're loading up on past success. You're not exposed to the future innovation. And so technology disruption is a problem for you. If you're able to participate in venture capital and private equity, then technology disruption is not is an opportunity. For any investor that has an ESG lens or universal shareholder lens, they might also recognize that when they invest in venture capital or infrastructure or when other institutional investors partner with them in that, that produces positive externalities for the whole economy. So, so one of the reasons I came away from Davos so optimistic is I came away believing we're going to deploy more than twice as much money into venture capital this year globally Mm. than we did in 2021, despite all the concerns. We're going to put a lot of money into infrastructure. Um, Nation states are going to try to migrate their power grids to become more resilient, more diversified, include more renewables. And, And just about any form of infrastructure investment creates positive externalities. You build a bridge, you build a tunnel, you, you create a more resilient power grid. That particular investment may pay off for its investment investors and on average needs to, but but it produces positive per capita GDP growth. It lowers the cost of living, it improves the quality of life, it improves safety in that local geography. Yeah. And it's a great point, Rich, because you know, you're talking about private markets. Sometimes they get a really bad rap from commentators, but as you're saying, it can bring a lot of positive benefits. Um yeah, just just would you go into that a little bit more about the, the positive impact? Well, let me, let me, so for infrastructure, I think it's fairly obvious. You, you build a bridge, maybe it's a toll bridge and, and the investors hope to get paid back through the tolls, but now everybody else in my case, I might have a new way to get into Manhattan, which would be really welcome because it's very hard (laughs) to get in and out of Manhattan reliably. I think the same is true for, for London London, these days. Yep. On the venture capital side or anything entrepreneurial, if the business succeeds, that's great. We've got a new business that if it's succeeding, that means customers want it, society wants it. Yeah. If it fails, that learning is really valuable. That that mm-hmm. team goes on and tries other things, that learning is really valuable. Th- those investors lose that particular investment, but that learning goes out into the broader economy and, and can help all of us do something better. And and venture capital is expanding out beyond tech into, into lots of other business models and areas. So those are kind of two examples of where private market investing produces positive externalities. I do think it gets a bad rap 
and, and I think that goes back to income inequality. And, and so one source of optimism in Davos was it's the idea that if the lowest income, least educated, least opportunity parts of the population within a country or across countries are getting pulled into the global economy, given better jobs, given better mm-hmm. wages, that's great. And, and, and that means we have less chance of, of populist, anti-free trade, anti-capitalism, governments coming into yeah. power, whether that's in a major economy, you know, the French election result was recent, or, or whether, whether it's in developing economies. Against that, there are two big concerns. Do you mm-hmm. want to hear about the concerns? Yes. <laughs> okay. So one is the impact. The, the Russian invasion loomed over everything. Literally, the Russia House, the showcase of Russia as a as a nation state, was converted into the Russia War Crimes House, right in the center of the conference. You you couldn't okay. get anywhere without walking by this, and it was highly effective in bringing home the humanitarian tragedy of the invasion. Yes. Economically, higher energy prices, higher food prices are horrible for poor people globally. Even if you live in an ex- exporting energy exporting country. You individually, if you have to commute, you're paying higher gas prices, mm. you're paying higher prices to heat your home, cook your food. But then food prices, there was a lot of discussion of the last time we had a global food price shock, we got the Arab Spring. A lot of a lot of regimes got overthrown quickly. And so there's a concern that we're going to see a wave of un- instability in governments, particularly in emerging and frontier economies because of the the dual impact of higher energy and higher food prices. Mm. So some some concern about that that impact on geopolitical stability balancing the benefits of a um full employment, you know, higher labor force participation, rising wage environment for for the poor yeah. globally. Uh, and I'd have to agree with that because we have seen a widening wealth gap uh, and I do think that that higher prices uh, in food and in energy is going to cause more social unrest in certain economies. Um, and so that's got to be a concern for us as investors uh, and and uh, and the advice we provide to clients and how we build portfolios, uh, as well as for uh, the people for whom we're, we're working on behalf of. So, so again, how is that reflecting in your thoughts as we think about building portfolios? To me, it just comes back simply to diversification and then matching up client objectives with the opportunity set and and also and and that includes clients ESG considerations as well as the risk tolerance I, I don't think there's there's a joke from 30 years ago when I started in the industry that an asset liability modeling study is an expensive way to get to 60 40 <laughs> that I don't know I think that's that a funny joke exists. but that was a joke <laughs> um, but but you know that hasn't been true for a long time and and as we whether we look across client segment defined benefit defined contribution family office sovereign wealth fund or or just look at two different sovereign wealth funds two different family offices you know Kara Williams who runs our family office segment globally has a saying when you've worked with one family office you've worked with one family office it it, it really the ESG considerations whether they want to do impact investing screen for green brown to green or, or focus on other issues besides climate, you know, that, that varies from family to family. What, how comfortable they are with different alternative asset classes varies widely. We have families that are 70% in liquid alternatives and very comfortable there and others that want liquidity. They want the money liquid and, and not complicated in terms of the investment. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, I think it varies by client, but diversification is always the central theme. 
Now you are we're talking about ESG, and I and I do have a couple of questions that I, I did want to put to you. Uh, one is the, the is is about uh, I guess I heard you mention recently about traditional energy companies having an important role to play in the transition to a lower carbon economy. And I thought that was a really interesting and provocative point. Uh, and I'd love to kind of, if you wouldn't mind, expand that for the purpose of our listeners. So I guess first we we start with our clients' needs and objectives and those vary. Where we have a client that wants to do impact investing in, in renewable energy that's great. And that's awesome for society. And we can find investments that we think are going to provide a very attractive risk-adjusted return. Where we have a client that, for example, wants to screen for green companies, companies that are already net zero or better, and and help individual investors invest in that type of theme strategy. Again, that that has a really important place in the capital markets. That creates a expected return advantage to being green, a lower cost of capital for the company, and expect a return advantage as as companies migrate from brown to green. Having said that, we we have a lot of clients who are trying to help the world get to lower carbon by helping traditional energy companies become greener. And I'll just give two anecdotes from Davos that that made me extraordinarily optimistic of our progress on this. I was meeting with the CEO of a traditional energy company, and I asked him, um, what disruptive technologies are you investing in? And with great passion, he talked about their investment in direct air capture, which kind of shocked me because I didn't think that was getting a lot of traction, much less um, from traditional energy companies. Yeah. And and so I asked him, and, and direct air capture is basically taking carbon out of the atmosphere. You you find you find someplace with a cheap source of power, solar, wind, geothermal, hydro, yeah. you stick a direct air capture plant on top of that power source, and you don't have to store anything in a battery. You don't have to transmit it to the grid because the whole purpose is just to take carbon out. So it's it's net negative. Yeah. Um, and he said, today, the cost of that's not commercial. In the countries where they operate, in some of them, there is a price for carbon. It varies from $10 to $100 per gigaton, depending on, on the country. And, and, um, and the direct air capture is costing them about $300 to take that carbon out. So right now it's not viable. But he, he said the cost curve is moving. It'll become viable. And as a traditional energy company, if, if, he, if he wants to be allowed to provide natural gas and, and oil to the global economy to meet energy needs in places where that's what's needed for the power grid and solar and other renewables aren't going to meet the need, he needs to do something on the other side to take carbon back out. And, and that can be in a different geography because it's a global atmosphere. So yeah. that, that was um, optimistic to me. I hadn't it's heard that before. Something... That's, that's quite different. And so it's, it's that, I think our listeners will be really interested to know that that's, that's within our sites that we can actually we'll be able to do that in the next, I don't know, decade, two decades. Yeah, and I, I don't know the time horizon. I don't think he does. It depends on the technology innovation, but the the cost of a lot of these technologies is dropping exponentially. Mm. He's making a bet that'll happen with direct air capture, and it's a different approach to net zero. I think the 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 approach that's kind of out in the street with the activists is that company should just go out of business, and we should do without oil and natural gas yes. and do that today. If we did that, the shock to the poor that we talked about earlier would be a lot higher. There are countries that just won't do that because their voters aren't aren't that oriented towards climate. Um, and and 
so so his approach of getting to net zero is different. It's it's we are going to continue to emit. We're going to get to where we take more out than we put in. Um, another anecdote is I, I met with uh, somebody senior in the finance function and the chairman of a of a Central African oil company, and they're they're investing in solar. And I I asked them, well, is that is that driven by your shareholders? No, we're government owned. Is that driven by your customers? No, and our our country's poor. Our customers just don't want brownouts and blackouts. They want a reliable power grid. There's parts of the country where it's cheaper to do solar. We are an energy exporter, but we don't have oil everywhere. There's parts of the country where it's cheaper to do solar than than to do oil. And the solar is a good complement to oil, and and the cost is so cheap that it just makes sense for us to do this. And that was hugely bullish because here here was a traditional energy company with no shareholder pressure and no real customer pressure telling me. Solar is now cheap enough that we're including it in our in our grid to our customers, even though, you know, we're an oil exporter and an oil company, and and so um, that that was hugely bullish in terms of you know you always kind of wonder yeah. what's real and what's spin even even on things like cost curves yeah and and I think they they had no reason I mean I'm not a buyer for them they're not a customer for me yeah. we were yeah. just making small talk at a reception while we waited to say to pay our respects to our respective buyers for this particular government. And, um, but that, that was hugely bullish to get that accidental anecdotal reinforcement of of what's going on with the cost curves. Yeah. It it sounds like ESG was one of those key topics at Davos. That's, uh, and that's encouraging and it's great to hear. And it's also nearly always now a top two or three topic, you know, at client meetings when, and, and clients are now starting to recognize that they have, significant scope themselves to exercise influence and affect positive change. And um, and I guess, you know, with, with your experience, with your 30 years experience, what, what are the most impactful steps that clients can take at this point now to achieve their climate goals? So first, Mark, be careful. You're making me feel really old with the repeated <laughs> year references. But, but I, I, <laughs> having said that, I'll double down on it. Um, I'm going to use a metaphor of, of digitalization in the internet when I was an undergrad computer science student, one of my professors was somebody who actually did help invent the internet. His, his, um, he, he was not a presidential candidate, but, but, uh, and he was denied tenure because my university thought nanotechnology was what they should focus on instead of, instead of this, this network. Anyway, um, you fast forward 40 years from that and, we're still talking about digitalization, it's still front and center. We're still in progress on that. We don't know where it's heading and it's accelerating every day. On ESG, back in the late 1980s, we were doing economically targeted investments in, in affordable housing, screening for South Africa free, tobacco, alcohol. I had a Catholic client go ex-US government securities because they were so upset about the US government's involvement in Iran-Contra. And, and and we were doing Shigeria compliant investing. So ESG is not new. We're, we're at least three decades into ESG and it's accelerating. And I think anybody who, who tells you they know exactly where this is going is lying to themselves, and if not to us. But it's definitely accelerating. It's becoming more important. It's becoming more multifaceted and more nuanced. And, and so kind of harking back to my story about the traditional energy company investing in direct air capture, the other traditional energy company investing in solar, you know, it's 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 not as simple as shut down the traditional energy sector and focus on renewables. We 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 would put the global economy into a severe stagflationary shock, much much worse. I mean, the the Russia shock. 
Russian oil and natural gas is still getting in the market despite the sanctions. It, and they're one exporter. Imagine we did that globally and suddenly what that would do to the global economy. We yeah. just, we're just not able to do that. So in my opinion, so, so we need a more nuanced approach. And I, I think ESG is going to become more nuanced and there's going to be a lot of lack of comfort for that. We see regulators trying to come to grips with how do we make sure that funds and managers are doing what they're saying they're doing and they're not greenwashing. And, and that's what I love today is the fact that there's greater transparency uh, and there's more data and and again there's a there's a backlash there's a fight back against greenwashing uh, for clients and so so again i think you're right we're on this journey we don't know where it it ultimately ends up but but the increased transparency uh, and more specific goals that we're able to set today with clients is 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 transformational in and of itself if you compare that to 5 years ago in in my view i i agree with you and and one of the work streams that we were the consultant on with the World Economic Forum this year is transformational investment. The biggest frustration that the sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, large public funds, and others that participate in that work stream have is around measurement. So they most of them have ESG policies. They all view themselves as universal shareholders. They, they own a share of global productive capacity. And so a stagflationary shock would be really bad for them. And, and they, they need the world to navigate to a one and a half to two degree future or below, because above that, their investment returns aren't going to matter. You know, it just it's just not going to matter. We won't we won't be alive. So well above that, but but you know, mm. if, if we can't get this right, so they're and and so they've they've set out their objectives and so on. But what is their staff doing differently on Monday? What are their investment management and custody and consulting partners doing differently on Monday when they come in the office to meet those objectives? They want to be able to measure the impact on carbon, biodiversity, water security, diversity, equity, inclusion, supply chain resilience. They want to be able to measure those impacts on the issues. And then they want to be able to measure the risk return advantage that they're getting from focusing on that. They're not looking for give up. You know, these aren't by and large impact investors. These are these are double buy line investors that want to solve the problem because then they can achieve their investment objectives. And they they expect to get paid to do it because the rest of the market, if it doesn't agree now, it will come to agree that these things are important and then they'll get paid. So how do they measure those two things? And if you think about the challenge of that problem, we've been trying to measure corporate earnings and accounting statements for about 7,000 years. And we're still working feels on like it. feels like that, yeah. And still not consistent across countries. So the impact a company has, including through its supply chain on carbon or biodiversity or water security, until we put the level of effort into that that we put into corporate earnings, we're not going to get to the same place. And, and the whole active management industry exists because we disagree about how to measure corporate mm-hmm. earnings. We mm-hmm. have standards That's for what point. companies report, yeah. but then the whole active industry looks at that and says, well, I can do a better job estimating the future earnings stream of that company than those accounting standards can. So, so you know, I think again, now that makes a market, and that means that our clients, if they, together with their investment managers and consultants, if they do a better job of that than than the fund next door, they'll get a better risk-adjusted return. And and on issues, you know, ultimately ESG factors impact earnings. That that's another thing coming out of the transformation investment stream. The, these these risks. Consumer preferences, voter preferences, changes in government policy, changes in what consumers will buy, whether or not you get regulation, 
just a shift in consumer preferences can cause your business to become unacceptable. And in a social media enabled world, if you take a reputational hit, that can be really damaging absent any formal government action. So every company is focused on ESG to survive and maintain stable earnings for its investors. Really interesting. And um, now I'm going to pick you up because you mentioned digital earlier, and and I do want to go there. If I think about this podcast, it's a podcast on investments, which listeners will access on their smart devices. Um, it's a great example of the impact that technology is having on increasing access to information for individual investors. And so we're seeing a lot of digital empowerment, empowerment of the individual. And we can see people are having to take more responsibility for their own financial future and digital is a part of that. Um, but I still struggle with this. Is, is this a good thing that that individual individuals are, are being more empowered to make their own investment decisions? I, I think it absolutely is. Um, I One of the panels that I sat in on as a participant, which is quite relaxing relative to being a panelist, um, was a financial inclusion panel. And, and we had some people on from some developing economies and, and some people on the panel from developing economies. And, and this topic came up because there's concern around cybercrime and cyber fraud and that the bad guys will use digital to expropriate money from poor people or people who you know, just aren't sophisticated in terms of how they interact with yeah. the financial system, the banking system, the insurance system. And the point that was made very emphatically and all the panelists agreed on it is those problems were happening in an analog world. There have yeah. always been yeah. thieves. There's always been Ponzi schemes, even before Mr. Ponzi's Ponzi scheme. There's always been frauds. There have been bubbles. You know, if we look at some of the pseudo cryptocurrencies as bubbles, we had the tulip mania hundreds of years ago, and that wasn't the first one. So, you know, there have been bubbles and fads and mis-selling. And in an analog world, it's hard to see that. In a digital world, you can actually trace the cash flows. The, mm. There's this misunderstanding that crypto is used by criminals to launder money. No, crypto, to the extent, the cryptocurrencies that leave a trail where where you know who bought and sold it's it's not money in a suitcase or bearer bonds. This is actually like the worst thing for a criminal to try to yeah. use as a as a as a way means of exchange. So it, it um, digital makes it easier to bring the light of day to this and to to regulate and oversee. And a very concrete example that was given is one of the problems in many frontier and developing economies is modern slavery. So an employer will promise to pay people certain things get them on site, and then they have to get their food and clothing from the company store. They're not really allowed to leave, and and the wages they were promised don't show up. Mm -hmm. Well, with digital banking, the government can look at, is that paycheck hitting? And if the employee says, I didn't get paid, there's actually a way to verify it. Where with with physical banking, currency, you know, analog banking, that wouldn't be possible. So I I came, the, the point they were making is, Digital is a tool. It can be abused. But net-net, this is hugely beneficial because it leaves a trail and and it, it mitigates the risk of certain types of frauds. And if you have a benevolent government, they can see what's going on between the different actors, including the bad actors and, and rank-and-file citizens. That's really interesting. Uh, Slightly different tack. Uh, This podcast is coming out during Pride Month. 
And I mentioned at the start that you're executive sponsor for Mercer's Pride Network globally. Uh, and I guess my first question is, why did you step up to take on that sponsor's role? I, I think it was two reasons. You know, I, I've always had friends and family who were gay or trans. And so when I had the opportunity to, to sponsor one of our diversity networks, you know, even though I have biracial kids, I, I picked I picked this cause because I'd been so struck by the difference in happiness of some of my friends when they were out versus not out. And when they were with friends that they were comfortable being themselves with versus in a setting where they either couldn't be, because I've worked in some geographies where homosexuality is still criminalized, or um just not comfortable being themselves. So, so that, that's kind of sense of it's the right thing to do. And, and then, but, but really in a more emotional sense of, you know, I remember when one of my friends was allowed by the U S state he was living in to marry his partner. And I still like tear up when I think about how happy they were to be able to, you know, actually be officially married in the United States. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that, that watershed moment when inclusiveness works, I, I think is, is really emotionally impactful. And then the other issue is just the, the sort of societal and corporate imperative. Um, we've talked a lot in this podcast about the importance of innovation, whether it's around ESG issues or just venture capital entrepreneurial activity more generally or innovation in the investment management space. Our whole business is about innovation capture and putting the capital and the human resource in the right place to speed innovation. So we get per capita income growth and just everything across the board. Innovation doesn't happen without creative energy and it doesn't happen without diversity of views. And so if you, if you come into the room and you have to hide part of who you are and try to conform to a group norm, if you're doing that about your sexual identity, or any aspect of yourself, mm. then you're not going to be as energetic and creative as you could have been in that, in that discussion, in that back and forth. And, and, and there's a need for conflict and conflict resolution too. And if you're, if you're self-monitoring, so, so one of the, I didn't know as much about the LGBT plus community and issues when I started becoming seriously involved as I do now one of the most emotionally resonant stats for me is that in the UK, where there are strong legal protections for LGBTQ+, only half of people are out at work in general. So half, half of that very important part of our workforce, which is significant in size, is, is spending energy suppressing yeah. some aspect of themselves at work. And that negatively impacts the creativity and diversity they bring to every discussion. And we, we can't do that as a global society. We're, mm. we're in full employment. We need every bit of labor we can get. So, I mean, the, the, those are the two reasons, personal reasons and, mm. and um, you know, the, the sort of commercial imperative that if within our four walls, if we're a more inclusive employer, we're going to attract and retain better talent yeah. and we're going to get more diversity and creativity out of that talent but also we're just going to be a nicer place to work. And, yeah. and, you know, when I mentor people, I, I tell them 
being nice and being humble in this business, it really pays off. People remember, like it's a, it's a reference based business. So I'd like us to be a good employer, nice employer in every aspect of how we're doing. So, you know, there, there's, again, there's the personal drivers, almost moral drivers. And then there's the, the hard commercial realities. You know me, Mark, I'm a numbers guy. It, it does drive better results. Yeah. So, yeah. I agree. And uh, I joined Mercer three and a half years ago, so a little bit less than than your 30 years. Uh, but I have to say it is one of the most welcoming organizations that I've I've ever worked in and the sense of belonging that you get here. So uh, so that's a plug for Mercer. It's it's a terrific organization and, and, and I'm gay and, you know, I've never felt so welcoming as when I walked in the door of Mercer three and a half years ago. It's, it's a terrific organization and I completely support what you're saying about the business imperative too. Um, I mean, how hard is it for people to have to come in on a Monday morning and change the story that they tell about what they did at the weekend and, and change the gender of the conversation that they're talking about and to, to, to out of a feeling of protection. And, and it's just so energy sapping. Uh, and so having a having an, a, an organization like Mercer and Marsh McLennan, who are genuinely so welcoming and so opening and so transparent and to have people like your good self who are, are sponsoring that at the top of the organization, it's um, it's it is really, really uh, powerful and transformational. And I also have to give a plug for Mercer because it's a service uh, on the, the career side and on the talent side. It's it's a um, it's we provide advice to other companies in this area. And again, so so again, we're, we're doing it. For, we're, we're doing it for ourselves, but we're also helping other companies in this area as well. And, uh, and I have to say all credit. Uh, to the team, it's it's a it's a very it's a it's a it, there, there's a huge amount of work that's being done as in this area by our, by our own teams and and all credit to them. It's wonderful to hear that from you, Mark. And and um, I know we still have more work to do both within our four walls and and definitely you're right. Our clients are are demanding more help, inclusive benefits, culture, behaviors, training. And across across a range of diversity issues, but in, including LGBTQ plus. Well, that seems like a good place to finish because uh, we've run out of time. Uh, listen, Rich, thank you very much for joining me today, and congratulations on your thirtieth year at Mercer. I think we said that enough during the podcast, uh, and of course, thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about anything we've discussed today, please contact your local Mercer representative or contact us at ctci at mercer.com. That's ctci at mercer.com. Thank you. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions.